You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to, what is this, episode 107 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm here with our guest, Todd Cerevel. Connor is not here. He's currently in Colorado. Carlton is actually graduating right now, and Connor and I are flying out tomorrow to surprise him, so this will come out next week, and he doesn't know that yet. I'm here with Todd Cerevel, professor and department head at the University of Wyoming Anthropology Department. He got his PhD from the University of Arizona in 2003. Todd was my advisor and a co-chair on my committee, as well as Connor's. If you guys think I'm smart, wait to hear Todd. He also is cursed with big brain syndrome. Now I know that the kid really likes data, like a lot. Does a lot of research on the people of the Americas, ethnoarchaeological research in Mongolia, and his pastime is factually disproving pre-Clovis with R and Excel and a lot of graphs. He's on multitudes of papers, which we can get into. He also has a dog named Callie, who is Strider's aunt or something like that. They're the same kind of dogs. But all right, so I'm gonna start this off differently. I'll do like the regular interview here in a sec, but I want to ask you. I guess it's kind of deep, but what does archaeology mean to you? And you can like nerd out and rant. I didn't see that one coming, Dave. <laughs> I can give you a few and warm you up with other questions. What does archaeology mean to me? It's a good puzzle. I mean, like, it's fascinating to 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 pull something out of the ground that hasn't been touched for 10,000 years. The last person who touched it lived 500 generations ago. That's cool. It's fascinating to put yourself in a world that people lived in that's unimaginable. You know, it's so different from the world you lived in where you had mammoths and ground slots and people moving their home every week to imagine what that life is like. That part of, I think, putting yourself into the past is, is a pretty special and I would say romantic part of it. But what I love about it is it's a, it's a giant puzzle. The archaeological record is not kind. It, it only preserves certain things, and it preserves them poorly. It's disturbed, it's blurry, it's ugly. And yet, we, we try to learn what we can from it and, and squeeze interesting information out of it, and it's a hell of a challenge, and I really like working on those puzzles. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, man. Especially when you look at, like, See, like the data points of lithics scattered at a site in an excavation, like when they blow them up and you can turn them in 3D and whatnot. It's pretty cool stuff to look at. And then like refitting is like technically a puzzle in itself. But yeah, just looking at the past with questions, I think is an interesting way to, to look at it, you know? I mean, lithics are a puzzle in and of themselves. You're right. It's like a 3D puzzle and digging a site is a big puzzle and we can collect data now better than we ever could. But I think more the kind of puzzle I'm talking about, if we're talking about lithics, for example. Yeah. This is maybe the least interesting and least important part of people's lives in prehistory. And yet, from our perspective, it's like the one thing that always gets through to the present. Sure. So we have to, like, answer interesting questions about the human past from a rather mundane part of the human past. And, and those are really, really interesting problems to me. Yeah. So, like, what kind of keeps you up at night when you're thinking about the past? Like, what, what drives you to answer or ask questions? I, I think those are two different answers. What keeps me up at night are the, so I would say, maybe the political nature of the field that is not kind sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. 
it doesn't sit well with a person who's not who's maybe prone to depressive thoughts. I know that game. But but in terms of the the big questions that drive me, I mean, fundamentally, I'm interested in why people do what they do, no matter where and when they lived. But you know, I'm I'm a little bit obs- obsessive about the first people in the new world. Yeah, and everything surrounding. Uh, their their culture history and their ways of life because that's what I've devoted a lot of my a lot of my intellectual efforts yeah okay well let's get to that later on in the show and I'm gonna do like the regular here I think you're an east coast kid right I am I'm a Virginian Virginian like DC area that's right okay I know Alex talks about that all the time reminded me so i know i was like a weird ass kid like i liked bugs and like picking up frogs and like looking at dead squirrels and stuff but like what kind of kid were you yeah also a weird ass kid (laughs) i mean i developed an obsession with bird watching okay i became a hell of a good amateur ornithologist i used to sit at the window in my mom's house watching the birds come to the feeder and recording which birds showed up yeah. I, I kept a life list. I thought I was going to be a zoologist and an ornithologist. I also was kind of ahead in math. My father brought us a Texas Instruments home computer sometime in the early 80s, and my brother and I taught, each, taught ourselves how to, how to program. But I wasn't entirely weird. I mean, I did sports, too. I like being yeah. outside. I like running around. I like playing basketball and baseball. That's right. I forgot you're a baseball guy. Yeah, you do uh, your own stats on baseball, right? I think that's a thing, or you did. Not on baseball. I mean, I, I'm very familiar with baseball stats and sabermetrics. Okay. I In fact, so. I often see baseball as a, as a metaphor for archaeology, at least the world I live in. How so? You ever see the movie Moneyball? Is that the one with Jonah Hill? I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I mean, I've watched the movie several times and, and read the book, but basically the gist of that movie in that movement in baseball was that baseball fundamentally misunderstood the game and a couple of teams hired some nerds to analyze how you really win games and how you really evaluate players and once they started looking at it systematically in a scientific way the game changed completely and i kind of feel like in archaeology particularly in certain segments of archaeology we have the way of doing things and the old way of doing things that's rather not scientific nor quantitative and that eventually the nerds will take the day at least that's that's what i want to believe sure. <laughs> which which ultimately is what happens in that movie and, and in that book okay it's on my list i'll have to check it out sweet so all that being said you went to undergrad was it for zoology at first or did you just do anthropology for zoology yeah yeah okay and where'd you do that at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Okay. What took you there from Virginia? My father recommended it. He said you should you should go at least a day's drive away from home. Okay. Um, at the time, I was looking for a place with a good zoology department and a place that had a crew team because I, I rode in high school. Madison met all those three criteria. I applied to several places, including Strangey, Colorado State. Anyway, I landed in Madison and I had a great time there. And I studied zoology. I ended up doing research in zoology with a classic ethologist, animal behavior guy named Jack Heilman, and I did a study of black-capped chickadees, Hmm. where I'd go out in the woods in Wisconsin and um, 
And all these birds have been banded. They've been trapped and banded to. I could identify individuals. And he asked me to try to answer the question of whether in the wintertime they'd already formed mating pairs because in the spring they mate. So I was recording who showed up with who at these feeder traps. And it turns out they had formed mating pairs. Anyway, it was pretty interesting because I got to know individual birds and their tendencies. And I'd get up at five in the morning and stand in the snow and watch these birds. Yeah. Anthropology was an afterthought. I took intro to anthropology, honestly, because back in those days when we actually printed course catalogs, I'd flip through it, right? Which I always found to be like a very eye-opening experience because there were classes in literally everything at a school with 45,000 students and like Mm -hmm. every department imaginable, right? There's like all this stuff, you know, nothing about. And I see anthropology and I'm like, what the hell is that? I have no idea. I think I'll take that. Yeah. I know that's a common story that you guys hear, right? Pretty much. Yeah, everyone kind of stumbles into it. And then it has all the interest that they've had like into one place. So it's interesting you went for zoology because like at Wyoming, we kind of look at people zoologically. And I, I think that's kind of where like your research goes. And like for me, at least, like I think of humans on the landscape, like occupying it and using it like a, you know, a zoological being. Is that kind of what led you to anthropology? Well, one, I completely agree with you, David. You know, I went to school to study animal behavior, and I think I still do. Just the animals are, are long dead and, and, and are bipedal primates. Huh. Although some people find that idea very offensive. I don't. I see humans as part of the animal kingdom, fundamentally animals, fundamentally behave by the same rules as other animals do. Certainly humans are unique in some ways, but we can say that literally about any species, right? So right. Uh, I, I don't really put us on a pedestal. So yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with you. I, honestly, I don't I don't know what drew me to anthropology. When I took 101, which is a four field course, my TA advertised a field school and I went to a, a field school in Western Wisconsin. It was like a Mississippian era pit house village. I was only there for 10 days. I didn't have a great time. That's not common. Not common, no. But but then I kind of forced myself onto a project with Doug Price, who was working, who was studying the transition from the Neolithic to the Mesolithic in southern Denmark. And I found myself in Denmark digging up the coolest stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Both the Neolithic, latest Neolithic and early Mesolithic context in Denmark, right? Living on the North Sea. I did that for two summers. And I think I think it was that experience that that hooked me that like being outside digging up old stuff being with young people laughing and kind of the combination of the physical labor and the intellectual exercise was very attractive to me and and the other piece of the puzzle was that i took a a senior seminar at the university of wisconsin which used to be a requirement probably still is which is a topical seminar you know you don't get to choose what it is it's just whatever it is that year yeah. And it was on the peopling of the Americas. And it was like, and that was like the first time I had seriously taken a deep dive into a subject. And I felt like I had developed some subject expertise and I could start to see maybe, you know, and I look back on it, maybe in a very naive way, the opportunity to make real contributions at the edges of knowledge. And it was those things combined that, that made me choose anthropology. But I have to admit, like at the end of my college career, I wasn't entirely sure which way I wanted to go. But you ended up going to Arizona at some point for your master's and PhD? Yep, for both. Was the stuff in Denmark kind of what led you there? No. No, okay. No. I didn't have much advice on how to choose a graduate school. 
what made me apply to Arizona was that Vance Haynes was there. And through this class, I had been obviously introduced to Vance Haynes, who was like a rock star at the time. Obviously still is a rock star and always has been. But I, I, I applied there because Vance was there. Also, you know, Doug Price at the time was like, look in the AAA guidebook. You'll find that everybody who has a job today went to Arizona, Michigan, Berkeley, or Chicago. So I think those are the places I applied to. Okay. And uh, I was only accepted to Arizona. Okay. And and the funny thing is, when I got to Arizona, I walked into Vance's office. I had gone there like over spring break to visit, you know, like a lot of grad students do, prospective grad students do. I walked into Vance's office and I was like, hey, Vance, you remember me? He's like, no. And I said, oh, I'm Todd. I'm, I'm here. I'm your new graduate student. I'm here to work with you. And Vance said, I'm retiring. <laughs> You're going to work with Mary Steiner. <laughs> gotcha. That's funny. And as disappointed I was in that moment, it was like the best thing that ever happened to me. Hmm. I mean, I wasn't trained by paleontian archaeologists. I mean, I was lucky enough to take a class or two from Vance and I still work with the guy. But I was trained by Mary Steiner and Steve Kuhn primarily who are paleolithic archaeologists and amazing people and amazing scientists. And uh, that was not my intention, but God damn, was it a good thing. Yeah, that's cool, man. I think you went like what to France and you went to Israel and stuff doing that kind of archaeology. I've never worked in France. Certainly I've, I've visited Paleolithic sites in France. Yeah. I worked in, I worked in Israel with Mary and Steve for one season. Okay. Was that like Neanderthal stuff? I mostly worked at Hyneem cave, which was, which is middle Paleolithic, at least what we were digging in. I mean, that site goes from the early middle Paleolithic through the Byzantine with everything in between, including beautiful Natufian houses and Byzantine glass furnace and Aurignacian early upper Paleolithic. I mean, it's a cool site. We were down in the, in the deep middle Paleolithic, but then Steve was working at a rock shelter nearby. That was Epi Paleolithic about, I mean, we were looking at a Kabaran occupation. I, I can't remember, but it's about 20,000 years old, about probably LGM ish. Uh, all these little micro blades and little retouch blade lit projectile points and things. Cool. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, that sounds like it's like just casually saying that it was epipaleolithic through Byzantine is like not something we do here. Pretty cool. <laughs> what do you mean it's not something you do there? Like we don't ha like we have what woodland Mississippi and then historic and then like right yeah. Like yeah, you got like Alexander the Great and the Mongols like taking over everything over there. Uh, we're going to wrap up segment one. We'll be right back with Dr. Todd Servo. Welcome back to segment two of episode, what is it, 107 of a Life Endurance podcast. I'm here with my former advisor, Dr. Todd Cerevel, and I guess we're going to talk about your dissertation and your PhD research. Seriously? I guess you could just give us like the elevator pitch of what it was. God, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> That's the kind of thing I did 20 years ago and then put it aside and never touched it again. But yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. Because this turned into your book, right? My first book, yeah. Okay. I just published another book, you know. Right. The Atori Art one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the dissertation. Uh, well, look, it, I, I started working on a Folsom site called the Barker Gulch. And the lithic assemblage there looked nothing like what... I expected for a, a Folsom assemblage or an early Paleo-Indian assemblage. You know, if we're going to stereotype early Paleo-Indian lithics, there's not many of them. It's low density, dominated by lithic raw materials that have moved huge distances. 
tends to be sort of centered around bifacial technology, whether we're talking about big bifaces, thin bifaces, bifacial projectile points, etc. Barger Galtz was none of those things. Now, don't get me wrong, it had beautiful thin bifaces, beautiful fulsome points, and non-local raw materials, but it was like 99.8% materials from within a kilometer away. It was mostly non-bifacial reduction. And artifact densities were insane, like, you know, up to 4,000 artifacts per square meter. And really, I was trying to put that assemblage into context and understand, like, how the hell does this happen in, in the Paleo-Indian period? That's not to say that, that Barger is unique among Paleo-Indian sites. There's other Paleo-Indian sites like this. But it really got me thinking about why the stone tool assemblages vary from, from site to site. And, and certainly a lot of people had done work on that before, but I think the, the real difference between my work and prior work is that I was trying to develop sort of formal models of how to understand why lithic technology stone tools vary from place to place. So using kind of mathematical models in a, in a human behavioral ecological framework to understand variation in, in stone tool technology. I can give you examples if you want a longer a longer story here. I think a question I've always had for you that I, I think would be appropriate now. To me, Folsom and Clovis are different based on like obviously their their typological point. But as Paleo Indians, how similar are they like in like culture? Is it kind of just the same thing? I mean, in terms of how they broke rocks, I think they're pretty much the same. We could we could talk about some differences that I don't think are very significant. Like Clovis people in the southern part of the United States made a lot of blades. Nowhere else did they seem to do that, and Folsom people don't seem to do that. Folsom people made prettier projectile points. Clovis people made bigger ones. Right. But, you know, fundamentally, I'm working on a Clovis site now, and I see a lithic assemblage. There's nothing unusual about it that I haven't seen before after having looked at 45,000 pieces of Folsom chipstone or more. I mean, to me, the biggest difference between Clovis and Folsom is that Clovis was first. And being first affords you opportunities. For example, Clovis sites are full of mammoths. <laughs> yeah. Folsom sites are not. Clovis people undoubtedly walked among giant ground slots and camels and horses. And it's not clear that Folsom people ever had that opportunity. I imagine they talked about it because the memory of those animals was still alive and well in Folsom times. But between Clovis and Folsom, you have a massive extinction event of, of large animals. And yet, I, I feel like the basic life way of highly mobile hunter-gatherers lives on. Folsom people are still focusing their efforts on large game, although the, the largest ones that are left, which are at that time... Bison. Bison antiquus, right. And of course, another big difference is that you have Clovis peoples in Florida, California, Maine, Mexico, Washington State. You don't have Folsom people in any of those places. Folsom is like is like a Plains, Rocky Mountain thing, and mostly like a Western Plains and Rocky Mountain thing. At least that's where most of the Folsom occurs. I mean, it, there's a bigger range if we're looking at Folsom points, but like the really well-documented... Folsom sites and most of the Folsom stuff comes from like right up against the Rocky Mountains in the Western Plains and like in the Rocky Mountains. Okay. So it's not a clear answer, but I mean, similar lifestyle, but like all those animals are gone, probably mostly gone. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think we've ever like established that on the show yet. But so I won't bore you with asking more questions about your dissertation because if I have to talk about my thesis one time, I'll vomit or one more time, I'll say. So with you being interested in people in like the Rocky Mountain, like Plains area and how they lived their daily lives based on like their tools and whatnot, what... I guess I know what brought you to Mongolia to do that ethnoarch research, but like, can you speak to that and like why you were asking those questions? Sure. A lot of people go into ethnoarchaeology because they, they observe something in the archaeological record that they don't understand. And they, they see an opportunity to study living people that, and they think they can maybe gain some insight into, into that phenomenon by seeing it happen in the real world. And that was certainly the case with me. I mean, for me, Working on Barker Gulch, again, this incredible Folsom site, shallowly buried. We opened up these big areas where we got over 75,000 pieces of chipped stone. And the focus of our work there, uh, mine and Nicole Wagaspak's work, was looking at the spatial distribution of human behavior through the spatial distribution of chipped stone and also the social organization of people. And when you're looking at all these incredible patterns in chipped stone, I found, because I I like math, and as you said, I'm kind of data obsessed and like analyzing data. Nothing makes me happier, in fact. Spatial patterns are just like jumping out at me, like all these interesting patterns and where bifacial thinning flakes are and where core reduction flakes are and where non-local raw materials are and whatever. And here I can see houses in the spatial distribution of stone and hearth features. But like trying to take all those spatial patterns and turn them back into interesting observations about human behavior in the past, I felt like we hadn't developed an understanding, a theoretic, theoretical models to translate patterns in stone tools on the ground to human behavior in the past. And this is sort of a classic kind of Ben Fortean middle range theory observation, right? Like we want to understand how human behavior and the system, the living system, translates to spatial patterns in the archaeological record. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way to do, do that is to, get, to go study living people who are still living a nomadic lifestyle. And, and for me, I had some really simple questions about, you know, how do people use space in nomadic contexts? And what, what factors are sort of governing how people use space and how they make spatial decisions, spatial decisions about where to do things? that I really didn't have any good answers to. And no matter how much spatial ethnoarchaeology I read, I wasn't finding the answers there. And I was like, I got to go find some people and, and go study this in the, in the real world. And that's how I ended up in Mongolia. I mean, there's lots of places where I can study people using space, starting with my own house or my own place of work. But I really wanted to study people living a nomadic lifestyle in a temperate environment. And at the time there and even today, there aren't many places in the world to do that. Mongolia was kind of a place of convenience for me because of I had friends and colleagues who had worked there. Politically, it was easy to work. Bureaucratically, it was an easy place to work. Like, you know, Russia, a little bit challenging. The stands, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, especially at the time, politically iffy, you know. So that's how I got to Mongolia. So what you were doing, I guess I'll explain, was like you had cameras strapped to the, I guess, big poles like near camp and you were just taking pictures of people occupying space throughout the day and mapping out where they most concentrated in the different seasons, right? Yeah, that was one. There were, there were two major data collection efforts. That was one using a time-lapse camera that was just taking photos every three minutes. 
you can map the location of people from those photos. And it's not just mapping their location, right? It's like, who are they? How old are they? What's their gender? What are they doing? What equipment are they using? There's a huge amount of data in those photographs. Yeah. And, and from that, you can you can start to understand what's governing how people are using exterior spaces. But those cameras are limited in what they can see, right? And a lot of activity in Mongolia, because it's a cold, cold place, happens inside. So for interior spaces, we were we were simply using a, a, a paper form and we'd go into people's houses for 20 minutes and record where they were, what they were doing to try to understand what was governing um, how people use interior space as well. Yeah. And one of the things I remember in one of your lectures was that you recorded that somebody was like smoking and playing Candy Crush. And that was like part of the ethogram or something like that. Stuff like that. Like when I ask what keeps you up at night was like, I always wonder what the hell people were doing because it's freezing out like in Clovis times. Like what are they doing in their tents like to keep occupied? I'm assuming like stories and whittling. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a terrific question. You know, one thing I noticed about Mongolia, living in Mongolia, is not only like how I used my time when you take away the cell phone and the laptop and the television, and the podcast, like, you, you got to fill your time, right? I tend to fill it in a much more productive way, taking notes uh, and reading books or going for hikes or taking photos, doing things that are, you know, kind of... Outlets. I would say, well, yeah, outlets that are... that, are, but, but a better use of your time than scrolling through social media, Right. And, and in Mongolia, you know, these folks living in teepees in the Scion Mountains in the middle of nowhere, they had televisions. They had satellite televisions powered by batteries charged by solar panels. And those would come on in the evening. But they spent a lot more time doing things like crafts. crafts. And it reminded me of sort of classic Appalachian culture, and I have roots in Appalachia. And, you know, things like bluegrass and music and singing and the way that People used to spend a lot more of their time embroidery, making clothing, repairing things. Uh, there, there's plenty to do if you live in a world where you can't go to Walmart and, and just buy something that, that's replaceable or melt your brain in, in, the, in YouTube. Right. So, and, and also consider like in, in, in like the Paleolithic or in Clovis times or whatever, like when the, when the light goes out and you just have a fire, I mean – you're probably sleeping a lot more. You're probably going to bed. You don't have this sort of long nightlife that, that, that we have today. When you're in camp, when you're out, not out doing things, not out foraging or gathering firewood, I mean, there's still plenty to do. Repairing shoes, repairing clothes, uh, repairing weapons, making crafts. I, I often think about all that like amazing craft work you see in the Upper Paleolithic of carving ivory and stuff, mm -hmm. making beads, like it's a lot of time and effort that goes into that stuff. But foraging peoples of the past, I think, had a, had a lot of downtime where they filled it They filled it with those kinds of things. Yeah. It's where we don't see much of it here in the Americas, but I'm assuming it's just like probably could have had like epic looking elk, you know, dresses or like jackets and stuff that were all bedazzled, but it's just rots away. So like we can't see it. But We do find it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, certainly in the Clovis period, we don't have a lot of that stuff. But I mean, we when we do have well-preserved sites, we do find it. There's a lot of beads. I mean, I, when I'm when I'm working in the archaic, for example, shell beads are not hard to find. I found a nice 
partially drilled piece of steatite or soapstone in a site I was working in recently. Hmm. Um, at Laprel, we have a bone bead, um, bone needles. You know, it's if you're working at, at mammoth and bison kills, obviously you're not going to find it. If you're working at sites where bone's not well-preserved, organic matter's not well-preserved, you're not going to find it. But I, I think there's plenty of it. I think the reason why it's maybe so abundant in Upper Paleolithic of Europe is because you're looking at you know, 35,000 years of time piled up in these caves where you have incredible preservation. That's true. Whereas in the Paleo-Indian period, right, let's say in Wyoming, where it lasts longer than it does almost anywhere, you're only looking at about maybe 4,000 years of time, like one-tenth of what you have in, in Europe. And our sample is nothing compared to what they have. Yeah, and they're spending most of that time exploring and figuring out the landscape and stuff. Interesting. Okay. I will say, David, related to that, we just had a master's defense, thesis defense by Molly Heron, who studied, who was looking at all these tiny little pieces of bone from Laprelle, and she found evidence of ivory working from two hearth areas there. So they're doing something with ivory. We don't know what they're making. We have clear evidence that of Clovis people working ivory at two different heart-centered activity areas there. I saw she defended. I just didn't know what it was about, but that's awesome. And obviously they were painting or doing some kind of like staining or something with the ochre. Yeah. And ochre occurs in almost all of these domestic sites anyway. Yeah. Since I've been like messing around with that, am I, it just, it gets everywhere. So I can see, I can see why it's all over that site. <laughs> yeah. Like it's my arms are covered in it, been making hand sprays and it's like, it's very messy. So I think I'll wrap it up at uh, this segment right here. But after this, I want to ask you just like everything about Clovis and Paleo-Indians. So we'll be right back with Dr. Todd Servo. Welcome back to episode 107 of A Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, David. Carlton and Connor are not here. Remember that. You know that. So I'm here with Dr. Todd Servo. And the question that most of you guys are probably wondering and what I would love to pick Todd's brain about and have him say on air on the record Uh <laughs> Well, first, can you take me through like Paleo-Indian history into the Americas and what are your opinions on pre-Clovis? And I will let you just sing. Dave, David, what do you mean by Paleo-Indian history in the Americas? You're talking about the history of the discipline or what? Or, or the culture history? Coming from Siberia into the Americas, like what, what does that look like? What's their lifestyle? Oh, people crossed the Bering Land Bridge sometime between fifteen and 14,000 years ago. They get into Alaska in, um, sometime around, I would say, 13,400 to 14,000 years ago, probably closer to the younger end of that. They breached the continental ice sheets by some route or routes. And once they get into the contiguous United States, they spread through the remainder of North and South America very rapidly. That's a short answer, huh? Yeah. So they're coming in and the pre like I took a peopling of the Americas seminar with Dave Anderson at UT and we read Meltzer's book. That was like our textbook and along with a bunch of articles. Which book? Uh, First Peoples in a New World. Okay. And I always thought they were just big game hunters only hunting mammoths because that's like, you know, what you see in the artwork and stuff. But like, I didn't realize the breadth of like their tool set and like the just sheer amount of stuff they were doing and how fast they were moving until grad school, like learning more about it through like the tools and, and things like that there, which I've always found fascinating. So I guess, what are your opinions on all that? Well, the simple answer is we don't know. And I mean, 
not, nothing I've said today in my last answer is not controversial, right? Yeah. Especially whether we're talking about where they came from, the route by which they moved, the time they arrived, um, all of those things are debated. And if we're going to talk about the, their lifestyle, whether they were primarily big game hunters, whether they had a, a very diverse diet and you know used a wide range of plant and animal species, uh, killed anything they encountered, all of those things continue to be questioned in their, their areas of research. Um, if you ask me, you see evidence for a more diverse diet in Beringia, eastern Beringia, Alaska, than you see in North America. North America, at least from the record we have, to me it suggests a pretty clear pattern of preferential targeting of the largest and rarest animals on the landscape. Not to say they exclusively use those things. But it's kind of strange, you know, in the Clovis record, the most common species in it is mammoth, which is would have been one of the rarest animals around. It's pretty clear to me they were not taking lagomorphs or, you know, rabbits and hares, at least not very often. It's pretty clear to me there was not much investment in the use of plant resources. And that's not to say they didn't use them. They almost certainly did. But they weren't intensively invested in it. They weren't intensively invested in, in small animals. Over and over again, we see a very clear pattern of preferential targeting of large animals. In terms of mobility, in the Clovis times, we see raw materials moving huge distances. We don't tend to see many intensive occupations, which suggests you have people moving frequently and over large distances, which, by the way, is really only makes sense if you're hunting large animals. And you tend to see people appear everywhere instantaneously. When I mean instantaneously, I mean sort of within... You know, the, the dating era of radiocarbon dates, Clovis dates very tight in the narrow range across the entire continent, which suggests a rapid expansion of people across the continent. Or the Clovis wasn't first, and, you know, it's a spread of the technology. In your recent paper that came out, you're essentially, like, if I remember the conclusion correctly, it's saying, like, just at, like, at Clovis time, you see, like, pretty solid stratigraphy, pretty solid like evidence of like occupation. Um, but before that, everything is just like scant and like you got like Paisley caves with shit and you got Monteverde with like three organic tools or whatever. But yeah, so uh, something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like I, I'm a person and I think I get this from Dave who like tries to qualify and like in my position in like as a social media dude now, people are like, well, what do you think? And I don't want to just like be a dickhead and be like, oh, it's not real. And then I don't want to be like, how do I say this? Like, I'd, I'd like to show both minded. sides. Do I? Yeah. You don't want to be closed minded. Yeah. But I do swing like a certain way on a lot of topics. Um, you don't want to be partisan. Yeah. I don't want to be partisan either. Uh, although I, I assume everybody views me as a super partisan. <laughs> We, we set out to test a hypothesis, and, and it was a very simple hypothesis. Well, the hypothesis is, is Clovis first or not? And if it is, it has a very simple predi prediction. And if it's not, it has a different prediction. And the way we looked at this was stratigraphic integrity. So the basic idea is we're asking, when do you see a discrete archaeological occupation in the, in the record? And what I mean by discrete is stratigraphically discrete. So I have an occupation with nothing above it and nothing below it, like a clear, definable, stratigraphic cultural unit. 
So if you think about Laprelle, where you've worked, right? I mean, this shit has exploded 50 centimeters vertically, but there's nothing above it and there's nothing below it. It's still like this stratigraphically discrete Clovis occupation where we can say, yeah, this is an event that rec- that that shows that people were here, right? And the question is, when does that show up in the archaeological record? It's not a complicated question, right? And if Clovis is first, you expect to see it first in Clovis times. If Clovis isn't first, you expect to see that before Clovis times. If Clovis is first, you expect to see it before Clovis in Alaska. So that was the basic idea. And in fact, this, this study was inspired by the observation that some of these recent pre-Clovis sites like Cooper's Ferry and, and Deborah Friedkin and Galt don't seem to have these stratigraphically discrete occupations. And the wa- reason why that might be a problem is because there's multiple ways to get artifacts into old deposits, right? If I have 16,000-year-old sediments and artifacts in them, one way to get those things to co-occur is for people to have lived there 16,000 years ago. Another way for that to happen is people to have lived there, say, 13,000 years ago, and then pocket gophers dig through a site and move artifacts into older deposits. Okay, so that's kind of the basic idea. So what we did was just compile data from about a dozen sites across North America and look at these patterns of stratigraphic integrity. And what we find is that the Beringian sites the classic ones, and I'm not talking about blue, bluefish caves. We can talk about that if you want. But sites like Swan Point, that's over 14,000 years old, and Broken Mammoth, Holtzman South, Owl Ridge, oh, it's the last one, Dry Creek. What you have in these deep levels is these very beautifully definable occupation surfaces that are older than Clovis. They have chipstone, they have bone, they have hearth features, and you can define them clearly. When you get south of the ice sheets, you don't see anything like that until the Clovis period. We have a large number of artifacts in a stratigraphically discrete occupation. Laprell wasn't even part of this study, but it has it. We use Shawnee Minisink, which is a beautifully preserved, intact, discrete Clovis occupation, but other Clovis sites have it too. Blackwater Jaw, Murray Springs, Lanier, Naco, Miami. I shouldn't say Miami. I don't know that that's the case because the data aren't very good. But all these classic Clovis sites have these very definable occupation surfaces. When we look at Friedkin, Cooper's Ferry, Galt, they don't. And we can talk about other pre-Clovis sites, Cactus Hill in Virginia, the same thing. We don't have a discrete identifiable pre-Clovis layer, at least as far as I can tell. Meadowcroft. Sufficient data haven't been published to even address that question, in my opinion. I'm sure Jim Adovasio would disagree. Monteverde, some people would say, definitely has that. And sure enough, if that's an archaeological site, it is stratigraphically discrete. And if it's that old, maybe Monteverde is the exception. But in my opinion, there are very few items in there that are clearly artifacts. So what you see very clearly, what, what our study you know shows is that, look, the archaeological record clearly shows humans are present in Alaska between, you know, 13.5 and 14.2. South of the ice sheets, it doesn't show that humans are clearly present until around 13,100 years ago. And again, we could go through all of these sites, like you mentioned Paisley. We can go through all of them and kind of pick them apart, but that's not really what I want to do. What I want to do is, you know, use the scientific method, develop hypotheses that are testable to try to distinguish between these different possibilities. And repeatedly, when I've tried to do this, I always come to the same answer, which is it seems that Clovis is first, and if it's not first, it's damn close to first. 
and I think you and I have discussed this, but like I like especially with the footprints coming out now, and like I, there's a critique to that, which I sh- we should probably talk about like on another time. But like if people were here before Clovis, like it just seems like they were exploratory little bands of people. Like there's no, like you're just saying, there's no like concrete stuff. But when you see Clovis, it's just like big boom of culture, like across, like you were saying, like Maine to Mexico. Like it's pretty like distinct. And like, that's why I like that paper. Cause it's just kind of shows the data for that. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're getting at is that the pre Clovis record is fundamentally different than the Clovis record, which some people would say, so what? It shouldn't be the same. But I mean, I would say the pre-Clovis record is not only different than Clovis, but it's different from everything that follows Clovis and is different from everything that precedes Clovis in the old world. I mean, how many how many old world sites where you, do you have where you have footprints, you know, and we can talk about Latoli or whatever. Sure. But then like no other archaeological record at that time or, or not like an abundant archaeological record at the time. At the time of the Latoli footprints, how old are those? Well, that's that's like... Lucy, right? Yeah, so we don't even have stone tools at that time. But we have to invoke something like that to make these footprints real, right? Like people who are living a completely different lifestyle where they're not using stone tools, you know, where they're not leaving behind uh, heart-centered activity areas, where they're not leaving behind stratigraphically discrete occupations. And, And it's not just the footprints, right? I mean, we have the footprints from... White Sands, we have the Coprolites from Paisley Caves, which are associated with basically no material culture, a very little. We have the footprints from Chuquet Island. We have a footprint at Palauco in Chile. We have a pit full of crickets in the Great Basin. I mean, this is a weird archaeological record. This is yeah. weird, right? I mean, you have dug in lots of archaeological sites. I have dug in lots of archaeological sites from hunter-gatherers and later, right? And we know what archaeological sites tend to look like. They have chipped stone, a lot of flakes. They have hearth features. They have spatial patterning. They have bison bone beds. I mean, those things occur from Clovis until, until the, the, the late prehistoric, right? None of those in pre-Clovis. You couldn't mistake a bison bone bed for something else. Human bodies, right? Human bodies show up in the Clovis period and persist to the modern day. There's no human bodies in pre-Clovis. The pre-Clovis record is qualitatively and fundamentally a different thing. Why is that? Is that because pre-Clovis human behavior was different? People will say like, you know, people are living at really low population densities, so the record should be sparse and harder to identify. I don't believe that. I don't think there's any reason to believe that, but that's the argument that that's made. Yeah. It's an argument that's made, but it's it's a very very different record. And when you when you ask when do you see clear unambiguous evidence of humans, to me you always get you always get the same answer. Okay, that was very well said. Another question I have that is related, and I, I find this interesting. And I know there's like caveats to it with like climate and all that, but like overkill. People show up in the Americas, and we could argue it's the impact or whatever if the impact's real megafauna go extinct and like i could say to myself yeah okay like if there was an impact humans didn't help it climate didn't help it but then also you think about australia as soon as people get there all the megafauna disappear and that's like forty thousand years ago so like it's just to me it's like the evidence is kind of glaring for overkill but there's so much critique to that the circumstantial evidence is glaring right i mean yeah there's this correlation between human arrival and animal extinction 
That's true in North America and Australia. It's also true in South America. It's also true in New Zealand. It's also true in the Pacific Islands. It's also true in temperate Europe. It's also true in Arctic Europe. It's also true in Arctic Asia. All right. <laughs> you, could, you could determine human arrival in anywhere on the planet without doing archaeology. You just have to look for an extinction, a wave, a wave of extinctions within the last you know, 200,000 years, and it would signal human arrival. Now, if, if this was a question of, of say, um, you know, is somebody a serial killer? <laughs> and every time they go to a town, 40-year-old uh, dudes with mustaches die in, in large numbers. And if they don't go to a town, 40-year-old dudes with mustaches don't die. And they've gone to 50 towns and we see this pattern happening over and over again, you wouldn't have any question about their guilt. But in the archaeological case, we do question whether humans are responsible for this. I don't really see this as a new world phenomenon. I, I know that's your question. I see this as a global phenomenon and a human phenomenon. Now, in my mind, the reason why archaeologists are so hesitant to take this possibility seriously is because the evidence for it, the direct evidence, if you want to see you know, the smoking gun, the gun with the fingerprints on it, the bloody knife with his fingerprints on it or whatever, the evidence is crap. I mean, in the Clovis period, we can show that people maybe hunted five of these extinct genera that went to, that, that suffered extinction. In Australia, we can maybe say that people interacted with Jenny Ornis, the giant flightless bird, and yet there was a massive extinction event that happened there. If humans drove these, these extinction events, they had to kill millions, literally millions of animals in the process. And the critics will say, where's the evidence? And it's actually, I think, a legitimate argument. It's, it's a good question. But again, as I said when we started, right, the archaeological record is crappy, poorly preserved, and biased. We don't have big samples, especially from these ex time periods when extinctions happened. So we have to ask, is the record that we have truly falsifying the overkill hypothesis and i don't think it is but it's a really really interesting interesting problem and yeah dave I, I would agree like the circumstantial evidence that humans played a major role in this is pretty damning but the direct evidence is pretty weak <laughs> yeah i could go on about that like i was wondering like maybe dogs came in and gave everything rabies that would kill everything real fast but that's a whole episode and there's no evidence for it but we got to wrap up and I want to ask you, and I've kind of always wanted to ask you this, but never really had a good time. Uh, so I'll ask now. In your opinion, and this is going to be tough to answer probably, what does it mean to be human as a zoologically interested anthropologist? God, I, I didn't see that coming either. But um, I mean, I, I think the, the fundamental nature of being human is being a cultural being. And what I think being a cultural being, being means is that we're incredibly phenotypically plastic. And what that means is that our genes give us the ability to learn and to adapt and to take on many, many different cultural varieties, whether we're talking about the language we speak or the form of a social economic organization or whatever, right? Our religion, our personalities. These things are very, very, very much detached from our genes, as opposed to a, a, a clam or a, 
or, or, or black cap chickadee that are, they, they certainly can learn, but to a much lesser extent that we can. So we, we, we respond to environmental stimuli, whether it's a natural environment or the social environment or whatever. And, and it means that, that, that humans are capable of, of incredible, incredible diversity in behavior and in culture that is unlike any, any any other animal on the planet although some animals are you know arguably getting close like uh, dogs are very phenotypically plastic as well but nothing nothing like like humans and other higher primates I, I think I think that's what it is and which raises a really really interesting question is which is you know if that's the fundamental nature of being human is this sort of our genes have coded us to be incredible learners and incredibly plastic and being able to adjust our life way. And this is a really successful adaptation. Why is it so rare in nature? And it, it makes you makes me think that there are probably serious costs to this kind of lifestyle biologically, like it gives you the ability to f*** up and make stupid decisions. Um, something you and I are both very familiar with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a great way to end it too. But uh, I think that's a, a wonderful answer, dude. Like, I think we asked Spencer that the first episode. I think we asked Bob. It's a little biased because we only ask Wyoming people that, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, cool. So we're going to have to wrap it up now. I know you're not uh, the biggest social media guy, but where can our listeners find you? Like academia or LinkedIn or MySpace? <laughs> <laughs> I have an Instagram account that I don't care if you look at it or not. I have a Facebook account. I have a secret Twitter identity that's not hard to find. <laughs> You know, just Google me. I'm, I'm, I'm everywhere. But yeah, I, 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 I really don't like putting myself out there. I'm kind of an introvert, which is often misinterpreted, I think. But, uh, but look, if anybody wants to talk to me, my phone number's online, my email's online, and I'm happy to talk. Sweet. Yeah, you take some great pictures on your Instagram. I always admired that. Actually, I think, yeah, I had called you one day and I asked you, how do I use a camera? <laughs> you were like, is it mirrorless? And then you like broke it down for me. <laughs> um, okay. Before we end, are there a couple sources like books, articles, videos that you'd recommend to anybody? That is a great question. I mean, Dave Meltzer's book, I think, is the Bible on New World Colonization, First Peoples in a New World. Dave and I have a lot of disagreements, but that guy is a hell of a scholar and a hell of a synthesizer. Um, that's a really, really good book on the peopling of Americas. No, I, you know what I would recommend to all the young archaeologists out there is take some math, take some statistics, enjoy it, don't fear it. It can really open your eyes to a new way of, of understanding the world. That's a very you answer. <laughs> but yes, I took a coding class from Todd and it was one of the most challenging classes I've ever taken because I can't understand numbers, but I saw the value in it. And if you guys also did that, like you'd probably have a really sweet career because uh, coding seems to be behind everything. And my other friends who code for a living have 401ks and children. So they seem to be doing all right. <laughs> Cool, man. All right. Before you go, I got to tell you one thing. I'm really proud of you guys for this. <laughs> you you are bringing archaeology to the world. You're reaching far more people than I ever would by publishing in you know the Journal of Southwestern Wyoming Middle Archaic and Scraper Technology. You're doing it in a really 
entertaining and thoughtful way. You're bringing positive attention to our program, uh, that being the, the University of Wyoming Department of Anthropology. And uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really impressed with everything you guys are doing and, and I hope you keep it up. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I guess I might have mentioned this on the show before, but like before I left school, Wyoming, I got a beer with Todd and I was like, how the hell do I do? I guess what I'm doing now. And you were like, you just got to do it. Also, my sister works in Hollywood. Here you go. Um, <laughs> but she just said to make a YouTube. So I appreciate it, man. Yeah, we uh, we have fun with the podcast. I didn't expect it to go this far. And like our network is just massive with it now, which has been pretty cool. Like we know a lot of people. So yeah, you're doing good things and you're bringing archaeology to the world. And I feel like you know, one way to do that is to bring pseudoscience and crackpot crazy things, ancient alien style or whatever. No, but you guys are, are serious and you take on serious issues. I mean, you're, you're also kind of jackasses and, and crack a lot of jokes, which I enjoy too. But I mean, ultimately the goal is to bring archaeology to a public audience. And I think you guys are doing a terrific job of that. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. I'll pass it on to the guys, but I'm sure they'll hear it when they listen to the episode. So, All right, um, man. Yeah, thanks, dude. Okay. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.